we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. August 1940. Leon Trotsky hunched over his desk in a humid, stuffy villa in Mexico City. For over a decade, he'd been in exile, bouncing from country to country. Wherever he went, the Soviets were close behind him. He'd survived two failed attempts on his life already. But Stalin could send as many assassins as he wanted. It wasn't going to silence Trotsky. At around 5 p.m., Trotsky was deep into his work on another polemic against the Secretary General. There was a knock on the door. Frank Jackson, a young Trotskyite who'd been helping him build an international movement against Stalin. Trotsky invited him in and rummaged through his papers. Frank would love the new pages he'd written. All of a sudden, Trotsky felt a sharp pain in his head. He turned and saw his young protege, the bloody ice pick in his hand. Back in Moscow, Stalin received the news. The undercover agent had successfully put an end to Leon Trotsky. It took three attempts, but the job was finally done. Stalin's last remaining rival was dead. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. For our first six episodes, we're exploring the lives of World War II's major dictators, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on Joseph Stalin. Last week, we explored Stalin's rise from Marxist revolutionary to leader of the Soviet Union. This week, we'll explore how he ruthlessly suppressed dissent at home to maintain his control and miraculously emerged from World War II as one of the most powerful men in the world. By the beginning of 1928, 49-year-old Joseph Stalin, de facto leader of the Soviet Union, 
had squashed his political rivals. Kamenev, Zinoviev, and most importantly, Trotsky were either exiled from the Soviet Union or had their voices dropped to only a whisper within the government. The brute from Georgia, who rose up the ranks within the Bolshevik cause, was now ruling with an iron fist. Now that he was in power, Stalin began crafting the Soviet political ideology, Marxism-Leninism. This specific philosophy wasn't technically around during Lenin's time. He simply called himself a Marxist. It was Stalin who shaped the notion of Marxism-Leninism. Though we could spend hours discussing the particulars, this philosophy can be summed up in four key aspects. First, a one-party system. In this case, the Communist Party would be the only political party in Russia. Second, continued class warfare. Stalin believed that bourgeois ideals could seep into the cracks of Russian society at any moment. It was important to stamp it out before any problems began. Third, dialectical materialism. In essence, this means putting science, logic, and materialism above religion. Soviet policy was to enforce state atheism and root out any religion. And fourth, an economy that is entirely run by the state. Stalin knew that the Soviet Union was way behind the times when it came to industrialization. As leader, he was determined to catch up with the rest of the world. What he proposed was the first of many five-year plans. And it was through these policies that a brutal offshoot of Marxism-Leninism would rise. Stalinism. A few years before his death, Lenin had enacted the new economic policy as a way to jumpstart the Soviet economy. It temporarily brought back free trade in agriculture and gave peasants private ownership of their farms. With Stalin fully at the helm, it was time to do away with the NEP. In its place was the first five-year plan, which lasted from 1928 to 1932. The key goals were rapid industrialization and agricultural collectivization. The industrialization aspect got off to a slow start. The Soviet Union barely produced more steel or iron in 1929 than it had in the early 1910s. But as time progressed, manufacturing in all areas increased exponentially. The second area was collectivization. Basically, farms weren't operated by individual farmers, but in groups. There were two types of collective, kalhus, which were like co-ops, and savhus, which were state-run. Like the industrial policies, this move was meant to increase production. At the beginning of 1933, Stalin declared that the first five-year plan was a success. Oil production had nearly doubled. Steel output went from 4 million tons to 6 million tons a year. Whole cities were erected from nothing. The Turk-Siberian Railway had been constructed in its entirety, and millions flocked from the countryside into urban dwellings. It's widely believed that these numbers were inflated, but Stalin had still made good on his promise. He was on his way to turning the USSR into a modern nation. But with the good comes the bad. One of the effects of Lenin's new economic policy was the creation of a new class known as kulaks. 
these were basically peasants who owned property and employed one or two workers. In Stalin's eyes, they were essentially small-scale capitalists and an enemy of the Soviets. The collectivization of farms was meant to end the Kulak class. Kulaks were violently forced to hand over their land to the government. They weren't even allowed to participate in the new co-ops. Instead, they were either executed, exiled, or forced into gulags. Lenin had originally created the gulags as labor camps for political enemies during the Civil War. But under Stalin's reign, they were greatly expanded to include anyone deemed an enemy of the state, a term that was liberally applied. Thanks to Stalin's collectivization, millions of farmers were killed in the gulags or by execution. And millions more died in one of the worst famines in Russian history. In 1932 and 1933, the Russian countryside of Ukraine, Kazakhstan, the Volga region, and northern Caucasus saw a tidal wave of food shortages. As flocks of people made their way into the newly industrialized cities, the government demanded a higher quota of food, and the remaining farmers had a difficult time meeting it. The government had also sold off agricultural products like grain to foreign markets to help pay for Stalin's industrial projects. There was also the fact that many farmers didn't want to join a collective. In Ukraine, the farmers revolted. Others simply dropped their plow and walked away, creating a lack of labor. By 1932, the food supply ran out. While grain was being held in guarded silos for urban consumption, the countryside was left to fend for themselves. The catastrophic result was the death of an estimated 7 million people. Some have claimed that Stalin purposely initiated the famine. But historian Stephen Kotkin argues that Stalin simply miscalculated the outcome of forced collectivization. He envisioned enormous farms producing an abundance of food. What he didn't count on was the high demand in the cities or the pushback from farmers who didn't want to collectivize. Stalin's initial reaction to the famine was to blame the workers. He claimed that farmers ditching their land were lazy and therefore enemies of the people. And enemies of the people were either sent to the gulags or found a bullet in the back of their head. Behind the scenes, Stalin desperately made trade deals with other countries for aid. He returned over 5 million tons of grain held in storage back to farmers. But the damage was already done. However, despite the millions of casualties, Stalin still saw the first five-year plan as a success. He'd accomplished his goals. The kulaks were virtually no more, and the Soviet Union had made strides toward modernization. From his foreign hideouts, Trotsky observed Stalin's rule in horror. In his opinion, Stalinism wasn't even socialism. It was state-run capitalism. Stalin operated not with the working class, but over the working class, exploiting them like any other bourgeois leader. And Trotsky made sure the world knew what he thought. Trotsky's inflammatory writings angered Stalin to no end. He hated that his old rival was still alive and still good with a pen. Even if he was in exile, Trotsky still had the power to persuade. 
It wasn't long before Stalin convinced himself that Trotsky was plotting a coup and that the so-called conspiracy had members within the ranks of the Russian Communist Party. This paranoia culminated in the Great Purge, which began with the assassination of Sergei Kirov on December 1, 1934. Kirov was a high-ranking member of the Politburo, as well as chairman of the Communist Party in Leningrad, formerly known as Petrograd. He was an ally of Stalin's, but he was gaining allies of his own. Stalin saw him as a threat. It's widely believed that Kirov's death was orchestrated by Stalin. However, Stalin blamed the opposition for the murder. In response, he instructed the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, to round up all suspected enemies of the state. This included his former allies Nikolai Bukharin, Lev Kamenev, and Grigory Zinoviev, as well as anyone who considered themselves a follower of Trotsky. In August 1936, the first of the Moscow show trials began. These trials had predetermined verdicts, but gave off the appearance of being fair. The first to be tried were Kamenev and Zinoviev, along with 14 others. Even though there was no actual evidence of the elaborate plot, both men confessed to conspiring with Trotsky to kill Stalin. On August 25, 1936, all 16 defendants were, of course, found guilty and executed by firing squad. A second show trial occurred in January 1937, resulting in 17 more executions. And on March 15, 1938, Nikolai Bukharin, the man who helped shape Stalin's socialism in one country doctrine, was executed as well. The Great Purge may have started with Stalin's own paranoia, but over the next two years, he used it to strike fear into the entire country. Exact numbers vary, but somewhere between 750,000 and 1.5 million people were executed on Stalin's orders. Over a million were sent to spend their days in the gulags. Stalin is often attributed with the quote, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Historian Stephen Kotkin notes that he, quote, showed no sign that he was in the least tormented by the slaughter. And why should he be? His point was achieved. So much as a whisper of anti-Stalin rhetoric was cause for execution. By the time the Great Purge ended in 1938, the only rival standing was Stalin's greatest enemy, Leon Trotsky. It would take another two years for Trotsky's assassination to come to fruition, but not for lack of trying. In August 1940, the man who had caused Stalin so much pain was finally put to silence there would never again be another internal threat to Stalin's power. Instead, he would have to turn his attention to outside threats, because while he was trying to navigate a new socialist nation, Europe was falling under the yoke of fascism. And by the late 1930s, fascism had turned its attention eastward towards Moscow. Coming up, Stalin is thrust into World War II. Now, back to the story. 
When Joseph Stalin took control in the late 1920s, his goal was to shape the USSR into a global power. For his first steps, he decided to focus his efforts at home rather than abroad. While Stalin did agree with the idea of spreading socialism around the world, he recognized the difficulty. After the resistance they met during the Russian Civil War and his bungling support for bourgeois nationalists in China, Stalin took an isolationist approach when it came to foreign policy. Unfortunately for him, this meant not taking the rise of fascism in Europe as seriously as he should have. Some historians have argued that Stalin's miscalculations on foreign policy actually helped give rise to his eventual foe, Adolf Hitler. Near the end of World War I, Russia and Germany had gone through a similar crisis. A monarchy fell, and the new government was overrun by competing parties jockeying for control. In Russia, the ultimate victors were the Bolsheviks. In Germany, the rising power was the Nazi party. Stalin had the opportunity to help the German communists and social democrats stop the Nazis from taking control. One would think that he would have wanted to contain the openly anti-Soviet Nazi party, but he completely miscalculated the threat. Not only did Stalin not side with the liberal social democrats against the Nazis, but he actually encouraged German communists to work with the Nazis to defeat the social dems. Basically, Stalin's strategy was this. Get rid of the liberal groups and the less radical socialists and make way for the fascist Nazis. Because of the economic depression in Germany, the capitalist Nazis wouldn't be able to retain power for long. Then the communists could rise and take control. However, Stalin underestimated the appeal of Nazism to the German workers. More importantly, he didn't expect Hitler to expel communists so quickly once he attained power. The liquidation of German communists in 1933 gave Stalin pause. Had he really been fooled again as he had during the Chinese Civil War? Since the end of World War I, Germany and Russia had been on good terms. But Hitler's move against the communists was the first break in relations. It signaled the beginning of the decade-long battle between communism and fascism. Germany's sudden militarization only inflamed Stalin's fears. Should Hitler invade the USSR, they wouldn't be ready to defend themselves. Stalin needed to buy some time before the inevitable war, so he began reaching out to other European countries and forming alliances. In September 1934, the Soviet Union officially joined the League of Nations. A year later, they entered a mutual assistance pact with France and Czechoslovakia. They were sending a message to Hitler. Germany was surrounded. Proceed with caution. But as the 1930s continued, so too did the spread of fascism. Stalin realized that treaties between a few nations weren't going to be enough. The war against fascism would have to be fought on the ground. The first battle would be in Spain. While the Nazis supported Francisco Franco's nationalist regime, the Soviet Union sided with the anti-fascist Republicans. Stalin gave them tanks, planes, and troops. But despite his help, the fascists won. 
The defeat in Spain was a significant blow for Stalin. The paradox, of course, was that the Republican faction he supported wasn't communist or socialist. It was a bourgeois democracy. This was the third time he'd sided with a non-socialist party in a foreign conflict, and the third time it had failed. According to historian Stephen Kotkin, Stalin might have thought supporting the Spanish communists would alienate the USSR from Britain and France. By supporting a bourgeois democracy, he kept himself in good standing with the two powerful nations. Whatever his reasons, the defeat in Spain put the reality of Germany's influence into perspective. For the safety of the Soviet Union, he had to make peace with Hitler. On August 23, 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact. By now, Stalin was certain that war with Hitler was inevitable. But the pact bought them at least 10 years. The deal did more than just assure peace. It also divided up territory in the Eastern Bloc. Hitler was given free reign to invade Lithuania and Danzig, while Stalin got Estonia, Latvia, and Finland. Poland would be divided between the two. This move not only helped Soviet-German relations, it also allowed Stalin to expand the Soviet Union without the fear of retaliation. A month after the pact was signed, Germany invaded Poland. Stalin, of course, was expecting this, but he may not have expected it to launch the Second World War. For Stalin, this wasn't a problem. He'd already made peace with Hitler. Two weeks later, the Soviet Union annexed its portions of Poland. And with the Fuhrer now focused on his war with France and Britain, Stalin could turn his attention to Finland. The winter war between the Soviet Union and Finland was a quick but costly victory for Stalin. In the end, the Soviet Union only gained 11% of Finland's territory, and it cost them 300,000 lives. Finland, meanwhile, only lost around 65,000. Stalin took the Pyrrhic victory as a learning experience. But back in Berlin, Hitler saw the Winter War as evidence of the Soviet military's weakness. If Germany took them on, victory would be swift. So on June 22, 1941, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. When word reached Stalin, he was truly taken aback by Hitler's betrayal. Once again, he had miscalculated. He put his faith in a man who was almost certainly going to betray him at some point, and yet he seemed to be shocked when the predictable move finally came. The German Blitzkrieg was fast and brutal. Stalin's response was just as bloodthirsty. Both sides engaged in war crimes the likes of which the world had never seen. Massacres, sexual assault, and beheadings were a constant. The war between the Soviet Union and Germany came to a head at Stalingrad. For five months, the two armies engaged in one of the most destructive and costly battles of the entire war. There were nearly two million casualties in a close quarters battle of wills, but ultimately, the Soviets prevailed. Stalin's victory helped him internationally. Until then, the Soviet Union was alone in its fight against the Germans on the Eastern Front. That was because both the United States and Britain had no desire to work with a man who once made peace with Hitler and who was a communist at that. 
But the Battle of Stalingrad changed both Franklin D. Roosevelt and Winston Churchill's attitudes. At the end of November 1943, the Big Three agreed to meet in Tehran. According to historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, Stalin became quite fond of Roosevelt during this first meeting. He formed, quote, as genuine a diplomatic friendship as he ever managed with any imperialist. Of course, that didn't stop Stalin from bugging Roosevelt's room. Always paranoid, he had to make sure his new allies weren't plotting against him. As the Soviets continued to push the Germans back on the Eastern Front, Stalin moved his eyes towards conquering Berlin. If he were to take the Führer's capital, it would be the ultimate retaliation. Of course, this would have to be discussed with Roosevelt and Churchill. Their next meeting was in February 1945. At that point, the Red Army was only 40 miles from the German capital. Stalin knew he had an advantage in the negotiations. He even convinced the other two to meet at his chosen location along the Black Sea. All three knew that the war was almost over. It was simply a matter of when. So the main topic of discussion was how to divide up Europe once the dust settled. For nearly two decades, Stalin had been burned in his foreign policy, either because of betrayal or simply by backing the wrong horse. But the Red Army's recent victories validated Stalin. He refused to come out of this meeting a loser. By the time the Yalta conference ended, Stalin was anything but. In exchange for simply promising to help the U.S. fight against Japan, allowing free elections in Poland, and joining the United Nations, Stalin was given the largest chunk of Germany, along with the Polish lands he had annexed back in 1939. One thing that wasn't discussed at Yalta, though, was who was going to take Berlin. Churchill, more than Roosevelt, argued that the Western Front should be the one to take it, Stalin, naturally, argued that it should be him. Ultimately, it was Dwight D. Eisenhower, the commander of the Allied forces, who conceded Berlin to the Soviets. Eisenhower knew it was much more important to work with Stalin than to fight with him. Delighted, at the beginning of April, Stalin ordered his two best generals to advance on Berlin. In the early hours of May 1st, 1945, Stalin had just gone to bed when he was awoken by an urgent phone call. Adolf Hitler's body had been found, shot in the head and charred from Soviet shelling. Stalin's response was, so that's the end of the bastard. But it was also essentially the end of the war and the winner more than anyone was Stalin. With the territory and alliances he'd gained, he was arguably the most powerful man in the world. With an eye towards the future, he was determined to turn the Soviet Union into the number one global superpower. What he didn't count on was the creation of a new American weapon that could end the world before he conquered it. Coming up, the paranoid Stalin faces off against the United States while tightening his authoritarian grip at home. Now, back to the story. In April 1945, the Red Army advanced on Berlin with the aim of ending World War II and delivering Adolf Hitler to Stalin. Hitler wouldn't give in to Stalin. 
On May 1st, his body was discovered with a single bullet wound to the head. Though he wasn't able to exact his revenge on Hitler, Stalin could still relish the victory. In the span of four years, the Soviet Union had gone from being nearly conquered by the Nazis to taking the German capital. At home, Joseph Stalin was now a national war hero. His generals insisted on calling him Generalissimo, the equivalent of a five-star general. But Stalin waved off the idea. He even claimed that he would only rule for another year or two and then retire. Of course, this was all nonsense. This feigned humility was part of the image that Stalin had cultivated since the 1920s. In the early years, Stalinist propaganda was focused on making sure that people believed he was the rightful successor to Lenin. Most of the images that went out showed him standing with the late Bolshevik leader. But over time, it became more about positioning himself as a benevolent, all-powerful leader, and now as the hero of the Great Patriotic War. Stalin's image was hung up in homes, statues were erected in town squares, parades were held, films were made. You couldn't walk down the street without seeing the mustachioed leader in all his glory. With all of Russia praising Stalin as the Russian savior, he made sure to bring that swagger and energy into his final meeting with his U.S. and British allies. From the middle of July to the beginning of August 1945, Stalin met with Winston Churchill and Harry Truman to finalize post-war plans. The 66-year-old Stalin went into the Potsdam Conference more confident than ever. But during the talks, Truman revealed that the United States had just developed a new bomb, one of the most powerful in the world. Stalin understood what the atomic bomb meant in terms of politics. Truman was flexing his power, and it was obvious that the U.S. and Britain didn't want the communist country to obtain one for themselves. The looming question, according to Stalin, should countries which have the bomb simply compete with one another, or should they seek a solution that would mean prohibition of its production and use? Stalin, apparently, had already made up his mind. Once he was back in his room, he immediately began consulting with Soviet physicists about developing an atomic bomb of their own. Stalin went into Potsdam assured of his global power and left with a sense of unease. Yes, he had the Eastern Bloc, the proverbial Iron Curtain, but America had the bomb. The next few years would be increasingly difficult to navigate. For the moment, it still looked like Stalin was winning. Poland, Romania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and East Germany all became communist satellite states. Then, in 1949, Mao Zedong and his communists finally took control of China. Now, a third of the world was under communist control. With the fall of China, the United States needed to act fast to contain the spread of communism. But the U.S. wanted to avoid an all-out war with the Soviets. And even with China on his side, Stalin still wanted to avoid a war with the U.S. too. What resulted were proxy wars. And the first battleground would be in Korea. 
At the end of World War II, the Korean Peninsula had been divided in half, with the Soviets controlling the North and the U.S. controlling the South. After allying with Communist China, Stalin gave his blessing for the North Korean leader, Kim Il-sung, to invade the South. In response, the United States sent troops to hold them back. For three years, the two sides battled along the Korean peninsula, with territorial gains moving back and forth. Ultimately, though, after three years and millions of casualties, Korea ended in a stalemate. While Stalin flexed his political might around the globe, at home, people were dying from another famine. Starting in 1946, agricultural production dropped by nearly half. Much of that had to do with the ravaged landscape of war and a drought in Moldavia. The death of millions from the famine was just another blip on the map for Stalin. He was focused on making sure the fourth and fifth five-year plans went full steam ahead. The goal was to make the Soviet Union the leading industrial power by 1960. Of course, this was all done through forced labor. At its height, 2.5 million people were forced into the gulags. Some were prisoners of war or hardened criminals. Others were first-time offenders or random citizens who'd stupidly made an anti-government joke. But Stalin's favorite targets were political enemies or perceived traitors. This included members of his inner circle, as well as Jewish doctors. In the wake of World War II, the Zionist movement emerged to campaign for a Jewish state in the territory of Israel. At first, Stalin supported the movement. But after a while, he began to see this growing Jewish nationalism as a threat to Soviet nationalism. By 1952, he was making wild statements like, every Jewish nationalist is the agent of the American intelligence service. The grand paradox is that Stalin was never more powerful than now, and never more paranoid that people were out to get him. His paranoia and his post-war anti-Semitism culminated in the doctor's plot. In 1945 and 1948, Two of Stalin's prominent allies, Alexander Sherbakov and Andrei Zhdanov, had died of heart failure. But Stalin, in the years that followed, came to believe that the Jewish doctors taking care of the two men had actually murdered them. On January 13, 1953, Pravda, the state-run newspaper, reported that nine Soviet doctors, at least six of whom were Jewish, had been arrested. They were allegedly part of a Zionist plot to take down the Kremlin. The doctors would be subjected to a show trial where they'd be found guilty and either executed or sent to the gulags. But fate decided to intervene. On March 5, 1953, 74-year-old Joseph Stalin died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Within a month, the doctors were freed. Eventually, it was revealed that Stalin's plan was to use the doctor's plot to initiate another great purge. But his death prevented the mass murder. As with the death of Lenin in 1924, the death of Stalin created a power vacuum, with the eventual winner being Nikita Khrushchev. Almost from the get-go, Khrushchev made it a point to erase Stalin's legacy. 
monuments and posters were destroyed, the gulags were closed, and cities bearing Stalin's name were changed. In 1956, Khrushchev delivered his famous speech on the cult of personality and its consequences. It was a vicious indictment of Stalin and the cult of personality he created. He believed that Stalinism inspired fear within the USSR, not pride, and ultimately it did more damage than good for the nation. The speech shocked the Russian Communist Party and it damaged relations with other communist countries as well. The most consequential fallout was in China. Chairman Mao condemned Khrushchev for revisionist history, and the partnership between the two countries ended. But for all of Khrushchev's talk of de-Stalinization, the reality of what he did was slightly different. Some of the gulags remained open, and Khrushchev used Stalinist tactics to suppress rebellions in Poland and Hungary. The only lasting effect was putting the dictator's cult of personality to rest. From a young age, Stalin had cultivated the image he wanted people to see. He had to. Between his smallpox-scarred face, his short, disfigured left arm, and his Georgian peasant background, he had a lot to overcome. In his early years, he crafted himself into a Marxist revolutionary devoted to overthrowing the oppressive Russian czar. But once he came into power, he became even more oppressive than the enemy. Which begs the question, was Stalin a true Marxist? Or was it just a facade that he used to attain power? The wavering opinion of Stalin over the decades highlights his complicated legacy. Khrushchev focused on the negatives, while Stalin's harsh policies helped turn the country into a global power, his brutal authoritarian rule killed millions. At the same time, many Russians have exalted Stalin for his leadership in World War II. When the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, many looked back on Stalin as a symbol of the nation's former power. Today, Stalin's image has begun to reemerge throughout Russia. Billboards, statues, and paintings of the brutal dictator can be seen on the sides of buildings or in subways. In a 2008 poll, Stalin was voted the third greatest Russian ever. Though he's been dead for over 60 years, the specter of Stalin lives on, leaving us to wonder, of all the dictators who rose in the early 20th century, will his legacy be the longest to last? Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll turn our focus to our third and final World War II dictator, Adolf Hitler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner.